Now, the one thing that Job had going for him is that he was taller than somebody. Because remember, the guy that gave the speech in the last two chapters, his name was Bildad the Shuhite, right? So uh, I have a little echo up here, guys, if you can maybe get that. So Job is going to answer, Job chapter 9, verse 1, he's going to answer Bildad the Shuhite, and he is at least taller than him. So, you know, if you want to look for blessings, sometimes you have to take, it's a little bit of a stretch to look for blessings, but there it is. He's taller than somebody. All right, there you go. Anyway, so Job answers, Job chapter 9, verse 1, Bildad the Shuhite, and Job's answer to Bildad's speech is going to be both right and wrong. Have you ever been talking to a salesman? Maybe you were buying a car, and you you ask a question like this. So let me understand, does the warranty last this long? And the salesman responds, well, yes and no. Have you ever had somebody? So I have a history of being in sales before I went into the... uh, the full-time ministry, and I had a boss who would often say that. We'd be in a meeting, and a potential client would ask a question, and he'd say, well, yes and no. That was his famous answer, right? So that's a, that's a good way to wiggle out of something. Well, yes, but no. Yes and no. Which is it? Well, in Job's case, it is yes. He is right about some things. He's going to be right about things that he claims. In fact, at the end of the book, God is going to commend Job that what he said was right. But his perception about everything is not right. So maybe we could put it this way. Job's heart was right. Job wanted to please God, and I, believed he, I believe he loved God. But his perception about everything that going, was going on was wrong. It, it was flawed. Why? Because Job didn't have all the information. Let me ask you a question. As you try to assess the world, try to assess uh, stretches of your life, seasons of your life, you try to figure out the why question, you try to deal with all kinds of stuff, are your uh, conclusions sometimes flawed? Yes. And you have a lot more information that, than Job had. In fact, you've read the end of the story, most of you. You know how the story ends. So, so Job's perceptions being a bit flawed I think we can give them a little wiggle room, a little bit of grace here. And sometimes when we're dealing with people who are working through stretches of grief, stretches of, you know, maybe it's theological imprecision, whatever it may be, we have to give at least a little bit of wiggle room for people to work through some stuff. And this is what we're watching Job do, and we get to come along along for the ride. Job's perceptions are certainly flawed. And there's times when we look at what he says and we're like, oh no, Job, but you know the end of the story. It's convenient when you know the end of the story, but when you're in the story, and that's where Job is tonight, he's going to have some struggles. He has believed apparently in a system that says when you do right things, good results come, and when you do bad things, bad results come. But he's been doing right things, and he's got gotten an onslaught of bad results. And sometimes when you do the right thing, you are not always guaranteed immediate positive results. Example, Joseph will not sleep with Potiphar's wife. He says, how can I sin against heaven and do this wicked thing? He resists her. He says no to her day in and day out. And where does he end up? In prison. 
falsely accused, wrongly put into prison. But the prison eventually became what? The elevator to the throne or to being second. And so he had to take a long route to finally get to the place that God would have him to be to preserve a nation. Now, in the midst of all of that, Joseph did not know what was going on. Why did my brother sell me into slavery? Why have I ended up in a foreign land and Potiphar's wife? Why does this woman keep making these passes at me? Why, when I resisted her and did the right thing and kept my sexual ethics pure, why do I end up in prison? But then he's the second highest ruler in Egypt. His brothers come. He preserves the family of Israel in the famine, and the Messiah can still come from the family of Israel. Joseph, in the midst of it, did not know what God was doing. And at the end of the book, Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God, what? Intended for good. To bring about the present result and to preserve many people alive. Now, he could look back on that and say, that's what God did. So sometimes God uses evil to overcome evil. Now, however you wrestle with this theologically, one thing that you need to know is that God is sovereign. He's ultimately sovereign over the universe, and he's even sovereign over Satan, as we looked at in the beginning of the book. Even Luther said that, that Satan is God's Satan, so there's nothing that Satan can do unless God minimally allows it, right? And so, if that's the case, then what does God do when evil situations arise? God can take those and exploit those for his good purposes. The ultimate example is the evilness of the cross of Jesus Christ. It was a terrible evil perpetrated on a perfectly innocent, the most godly, the most righteous person that ever lived or will live. It was evil. The cross itself was evil. But what did God do with it? He used it for the ultimate good. And sometimes our lives are going to take some securitous uh, roots. We're going to go the long way home. We're going to wonder what God is doing. But God has a plan. He has good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I know that this doesn't answer every question for all of you. It doesn't for me. It doesn't dot every I and cross every T. But it does give me some ultimate answers in terms of understanding the problem of evil and the power of the gospel. In truth, Job 9.2, Job says, I know that this is so. What does Job know is so? Well, back to Bildad's speech. He says in 8.22, Job 8, 8, I'm sorry, Job 8, verse 20, Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame. And the tent of the wicked will be no more. Earlier in Eliphaz, Eliphaz's speech, if you look back for a moment to chapter 8, verse 3, uh, I'm sorry, in Bildad's speech, he says, does God pervert justice? I think Job would say no. Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? As Abraham put it, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So I think what Job is doing is he is responding to the system that Bildad has laid out, the religious system, the worldview, and he's saying, yes, I agree with that. In truth, Job 9.2, I know that this is so. But 
How can a man or a person be right or be in the right before God? God never perverts justice. God rejects a blameless person. He rewards the righteous. I believe that, says Job, but that has been turned on its head. I believed something about life. I had a worldview, and I tried to live up to it. I lived a blameless life. I was offering sacrifices for my children. I was trying to do what was right and pleasing, turning away from evil, embracing what was good, and my life was turned into a trash heap. What do you do when what you've believed about the world, and get this, even the character of God is turned on its head? Now what do you do? When you believe that you did everything right and things still went wrong, that's where Job is. That's the question that Job is asking. And we began to dig out something that I put before you last week if you were here, and we began to look at this idea of redemptive suffering. And I know it's a hard concept, but it's this idea. That in suffering... Sometimes what God does is in our suffering, he allows us to become a beacon of hope and to give an answer for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. And I took you to 1 Peter 3.15, the famous apologetics verse, and I showed you that the context of that verse is in suffering. And that someone might ask you, why do you live the way that you live? Why do you have the hope that you have? Why do you hold on to that hope in the midst of suffering? And that's when you can give an apologetic for the hope that you have. Not when everything's good. When do you think people in the world might listen to you the most? When you're living on the top of the hill and all your blessings are raining down from heaven and you sell them the system, which is perpetrated all over television today. Just do this and this will happen. Just read my book and this will happen. Pull this lever and this will happen. Pray this way and this will happen. And then someone calls one of those ministries and says, I pulled the lever, I paid the payments, I prayed the prayers, and the opposite has happened to what you said was going to happen. Now what? Now you have to realize something about God. God is good, as C.S. Lewis put it, but he's not always safe. God is God. God spoke the universe into existence. We are here because of God, and God's ways are higher than our ways. And I don't understand all of that because I have a very finite and small brain, comparatively speaking, to the Lord of the universe. And that's why you and I struggle. And so Job says, well, how, how could I be right with God? How could I win the case against God? You ever watch those daytime court shows where the litigants come in and are now entering into the courtroom. Mr. Smith, who's suing Mr. Johnson because he broke his typewriter from the 1970s. Here they come now. Right? And then I don't know why people go on those shows because the judges make them look like fools, right? So, uh, Mr. Johnson, you are saying that you did not break the typewriter, Mr. Th All right, that's what I'm quiet! <laughs> when I want you to talk, I'll tell you to talk. <laughs> okay. Why would anybody go on a show like that? Right? 
Can you imagine if the litigants, if one day you were sick, home from work, and you turn on the television, and it was Mr. Johnson against God. Can you imagine? What would that case look like? Now, Mr. Johnson, you will speak against the Lord of the universe. <laughs> now, at the end of the book of Job, you know what Job's going to do? Job's going to have a chance before God. God is going to answer him in the tempest. And you know what Job says? Uh, nada. Except, Job says, I heard about you before. Now I've seen you with my eyes. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I hear no evil. I see no evil. I speak of no evil. <laughs> right? Because in the presence of the Almighty, Job found his answers in the face of God. And I don't understand all those layers, but that's what happened to Job. And Job is asking the question as he goes through his suffering, he says, he says, verse 3, if one wished to dispute, ESV, to contend, if you have a New Living Translation, Job 9.3 says, if someone wanted to take God to court, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied, the word describes the action of a warrior bracing himself for a contest, who defies him without harm? If Job knows deep in his soul that he really doesn't, can't think of anything to repent of and he wants to talk to God and be right with God and be justified in God's sight, and remember, he still doesn't understand, God's not mad at Job. God's been boasting about Job. But Job thinks that God is mad at him. And maybe you do tonight. You know, something goes haywire in our lives and we sometimes say something like this, what did I do to deserve this? And that's normal. But it may not be that God's mad at you at all. And some of us, you know, that's our immediate thing as we go to. Who, who can square off with God in a courtroom or some believe that the Hebrew here allows for a wrestling match? One writer says, in an ancient court, the winner often was the one who argued his position so convincingly and refuted his opponent so persuasively that he reduced him to silence. A second way of deciding a dispute in the ancient world was for the two contestants to engage in a wrestling match. You ever done this with a friend? All right, here's what we're going to do. Let's arm wrestle for it, right? Or let's flip a coin. Or what's that, rock, rock? paper. All right, two out of three. Five out of seven. That's not even a legitimate sign. What are you doing? You can't hit your forehead, you know. Well, in the ancient world, apparently, if you had a dispute, this was one option you had. You could size up your opponent and say, never mind, let's wrestle. And you squared off. And you wrestled your opponent, and whoever won got their way. Now, some of you remember that in Genesis 32, Jacob found himself between a rock and a hard place. He knew Esau and Esau's troops were coming, and he had sent his uh, family across the river, and he was waiting to see what was going to go down. And all of a sudden, somebody in the night grabbed old Jacob. 
and a wrestling match ensued. Ancient MMA, dust was flying. They were wrestling until the early morning light. And the, the strange, mysterious visitor that night that we know to be the angel of the Lord or God himself, he said, let go of me. The sun is about to come up. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And the mysterious visitor went zoop and touched uh, the old uh, thigh area of Jacob. And boy, his hip went out of socket and he never walked the same again. And you know what? Jacob, his name meant, I have to admit it, I'm a conniver, I'm a manipulator, I'm Jacob. And that night, God renamed Jacob to Israel, which many scholars believe means governed by God, or get this, James Montgomery Boyce made a good argument that the name Israel means God prevails. Jacob. Ding, ding, ding. In this corner is the master of the universe, the Lord Almighty, <laughs> right? And here's Jacob. All right, I don't know. What should I open with? What would be a good move, right? Well, Jacob was never winning in that match. He thought he was, but he wasn't. But in losing, he won. In yielding to God's plan, in and in finally saying, I'm no longer going to be a conniver. I see where it's gotten me. I've been wrestling my whole life. I'm going to surrender to you. And God says, you know what? Tonight, your name is Israel. You will now be governed by me. You'll be governed by God. See, this idea of the ancient wrestling match literally happened to a man named Jacob. And when I taught that message not too long ago, in this congregation I asked a question I'll ask it of you tonight are you wrestling with God have you hit the bell okay let's wrestle <laughs> some of you are limping it's hard to fight against God but that's where Job was he says of God this one that he might wrestle with or go to court with. He says, it is God who removes the mountains. He's so mighty and powerful. They know not how. This is uh, some language of creation, but it's kind of turned on its head. God removes the mountains. He made the mountains, now he removes them. He overturns them in his anger, perhaps implying that Job thinks God is angry with him. Some believe this is even the language of volcanic eruption. God shakes the earth, verse 6, Job 9, out of its place. Its pillars tremble. How do you fight somebody like this? Who spoke the universe into existence? Psalm 82, 1 through 5 says, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. In Hannah's song, Hannah said of God, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He set the world on them. 
Psalm 104, verse 5 says, God established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. But Job sees God as this being that could undo what he did. He made the creation. He holds it together, but he could make the earth totter. What could I do in comparison to a God like that? God is the one who commands the sun not to shine. Now, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God just, bam, there it is, right? But in day of the Lord language, at one point in our uh, future, God is going to let the natural lights go out. The sun won't shine. The stars will lose their brilliance. How do you fight a being like that? Who could say to the sun, that's it, you're not going to shine today. Who could seal the stars so that they don't shine? Job says, what would I do in a situation like that? And maybe implied, how, how could I somehow try to understand and fathom the one who is the light in my life? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. He'll have the light of life. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fare? But what happens when the one who is my light all of a sudden appears to be throwing darkness at me? What if the one that I look to for hope now seems to have me as his adversary? What then? What when I want to lean into God in a low point of my life and I'm standing on promises that I believed in my whole life and now his character is in question because I see something else happening in my life. God alone stretches out the heavens, Job continues. He tramples down the waves of the sea. Isaiah 44, 24 says that the Lord, your Redeemer, is the one who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth all alone, Isaiah 44, 24. What do you do with a being like this? He says he does great things. Notice he makes the bear, Orion, these are constellations, Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things unfathomable, and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. God is spirit. He's invisible. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Would you all turn to the book of Mark, chapter 6? Mark, chapter 6. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark, chapter 6. The famous account of Jesus sending them into the boat. And here's what the Bible says about that account. So, Mark 6, verse 45. Mark 6, 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, Mark 6, 45, and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, Mark 6, 46, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, well into the wee hours of the morning now, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to what? To pass them by. Do you know that many scholars believe that Jesus walking on the waves and intending to pass them by 
comes from Job chapter 9. And here's the deal. The disciples are in quite a quandary. The Sea of Galilee is whipped up a major storm. They're fighting against the storm, the wind and the waves. They believe they're going to perish. And all of a sudden, coming, walking on top of not a calm, a body of water, right? On top of the big waves, Jesus is walking on the water. He tramples on the waves. This is one evidence that Jesus is God. And Mark says he intended to what? Pass them by, which is also from Job chapter 9. If, I, if he was near me, I wouldn't perceive him. He would pass me by. And why do you think that Mark says that he intended to pass them by? Do you think he was just going to go by and say, Hey, boys, <laughs> this is a quicker mode of transportation anyway. You look like you're having problems. No, I think Jesus did this because he wanted them to do what? To call upon his name. And maybe implied, implicit in Mark is something like this. Lord, when I'm in my storm, don't pass me by. And whenever you're in a storm, I think the one thing that God wants us to do is call out to him. To ask him to come into the boat, to calm the waves, And if he doesn't calm the waves, at least that we know he's in the boat with us. But remember, in the beginning of the account, Jesus went up to pray on the mountain. He had sent them into the storm. It was Jesus' doing. He sent them into the storm. It was his will to teach them what? Well, many lessons, and some of which, as we continue reading, we see. Because it says in verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed... It was a phantasma or a ghost, and they cried out. And for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them, he spoke with them, said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Keep reading. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts was hardened. Do you know that Jesus sent the disciples into the storm right after he did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? And they had not learned the lesson. And so he sent them into a storm to soften their hard hearts. Hmm. I wonder if God ever does that to me. Have you ever come to a point in your Christian life where, go back to Job if you would, and you're in a bit of cruise control, maybe kind of kicking back, resting on your laurels. Oh, you're going to church, you're reading your Bible, but some of your passions died. You have to be honest. And all of a sudden, God puts you in a situation where you have to pray like you ain't prayed for a while. Anybody? Oh, Lord. The wind and the waves. (laughs) Right? And I don't got this one. This this one doesn't look as easy as the other ones, like going to church and saying my prayers before I go to bed. Right? And all of a sudden, you got to pray and press into God, and you're going into a storm. (laughs) Jesus says, good. Because you didn't learn the lesson from the last storm I put you in. 
You didn't learn the lesson from the last time I showed you my power on the mountain. So you're going to go in again. How many tests does it take <laughs> to soften a heart like mine? Oh, I wish it were just a few. And so you can see in Job 9, a couple of those references. Job 9, verse 8. God tramples down the waves of the sea. I want you to think of that Mark passage when Jesus walks on the waves. And then Job 9, 11. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, think of the boat in Mark 6, I would not perceive him. They thought it was a ghost, it was a specter, it was a spirit, but Jesus says, no, no, it's I, don't, don't be afraid. And they called him into the boat and things calmed down. I don't know that every time this happens that all my storms are gonna go away. But I do know if he's on my boat, I'm okay. Amen. Well, this is the God who makes constellations. He does all these incredible things. Were he, look at, go down to verse 12. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? <laughs> You ever said that to somebody? What, what do you think you're doing? You remember when the disciples went to get the colt for Jesus for the uh, triumphal entry and they were untying the colt and the owners of the colt said, hey, that's my Dodge colt, man. What do you think you're doing? And they said, oh, but the Lord has need of it. Oh, and then they let the colt go. Now, I would not use that line if you're trying to take somebody's bicycle or automobile. <laughs> the Lord has need of it. Well, he has my phone number, so <laughs> try again. But let me introduce you to Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson. See, when you say to somebody, what are you doing? That's like a bystander who's putting the rightness of an action into question. And Job questions whether you could ask the question, what are you doing? But we've all probably asked it, at least in our minds. What are you up to here? What are you doing? Notice, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. One writer says, even the helpers of Rahab, a story, storybook monsters of evil were no match for God. And Job, I think, implied is saying, why do you treat me as if I'm your enemy? I don't understand. How then can I answer him, 14, and choose my words before him? How can I find words to argue with him, says Job in the NIV, verse 14. Do you all hold your place in Job and go over to Isaiah chapter 45. So in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, God, the true God of the Bible, is calling in the false gods into a kind of a metaphorical courtroom to challenge whether they're legit. And in the middle of that section, Isaiah 45, there's a prophecy given. <clears throat> the prophecy is about Cyrus, but there's some interesting language about quarreling with God I want you to see. And it's Isaiah 45, verse 6. And uh, how many of you, uh, do you guys like court shows? I, I enjoy the court shows, you know, the the legal defenses, the cross-examinations, all of those shows. So, uh, can you imagine being cross-examined by God? 
<laughs> Give me some extra water. <laughs> All right. Uh, would you like to cross-examine the witness? Here comes the Lord. <laughs> do, you think, do you think he could undo you on the witness stand a little bit? As he enters into the cross, <laughs> shining bright light. <laughs> right? It says 45, 6 of Isaiah, that men may know from the rising of the, to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me, God speaking. I am the Lord, 45, 6 of Isaiah. There is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up salvation, bear fruit, and bear fruit. And righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who does what? Who quarrels with his maker. But this is what Job essentially is doing. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What? Here's our phrase. What are you doing? <laughs> or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. Go back to the book of Job. Could you imagine if you were forming a piece of pottery on one of those potter's wheels, you're adding a little water to it, shaping it, and the clay spoke up. Hey, why are you making me like this? Because <laughs> me potter, you clay. And when would you start talking anyway? I don't know, but... <laughs> if that's what a pot sounds like, I have no idea. If it was from VeggieTales, he would say, but Bob, I don't have any hands. All right, never mind. For though I were right, so let's say I was in the courtroom with God. Though I were right, and is Job in one sense right? Yeah. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's been blameless. I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. Let's say I had a good argument against God. Where, where's that going? <laughs> He's the judge of the universe. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. If I actually said something, I would be overwhelmed that he even responded. For he bruises me with a tempest. Later, God will answer Job from a tempest. Job is saying something like this. He's like talking to a tornado or a hurricane. And let me tell you one other thing. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're trying to argue with a tornado or a hurricane and something else. <laughs> you just get sucked up into the vortex. Have you seen those tornado chaser people? You ever seen those movies where they actually chase the thing? Wild stuff. Why would you ever do something like that? And then they try to send up the equipment into it. He bruises me with a tempest, multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, remember Job's friends are here listening to this now. Behold, he is the strong one. And if it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. Now Job's, some of his things are yes and some are no. Because his perceptions about God are flawed right now. God is not mad at Job. 
God has allowed Satan to get at him. And, and God says to Satan, you incited me against him without a cause. Job's still trying to figure out what is at the heart of this problem. And there is something spiritual going on beyond what he can see. And that's why he's struggling. And this is where we have to make a little room, my brothers and sisters. Please hear what I'm about to say. We have to make a little room for the spiritual world that we don't see. See, as a Christian, you've acknowledged that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. As a Christian, you've acknowledged that there's another uh, world that you cannot see right now, where there are enemies and there, there's things that go on. There, there's the deep workings of God and and this is where we have to allow a little bit of wiggle room that everything in our lives is not always going to measure up perfectly to some system we've created in our minds. I know the world likes that which is predictable, and we as people, as humans, like that which is predictable. But Job is sa says, this has happened to me without a cause. I am guiltless, 21. I do not take notice of my myself. I despise or loathe my life. Job's words imply that he is beside himself with confusion and grief. Perhaps he is simply tired and tired of hearing himself talk. Have you ever become tired of hearing yourself talk? You're just like, talk, 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 talk. <laughs> and finally you're like, to yourself, shut up! <laughs> if nobody else is going to say it, I'm going to say it to you in the mirror. Quiet! Talk, 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 talk. You ever been at a point where you're so talked out and you've analyzed something from about 72 different angles that you do something like this? You, you, you just become almost like giddy and you're like, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> I think that's kind of where Job is at. He says, it is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless with the wicked. Now he's kind of winding down in the wicked on uh, chapter 9. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Now, now it's getting kind of ugly. Job is saying, the, the world makes no sense. The righteous die with the wicked. The wicked with the righteous. Turn on the evening news. You know, the first five news stories make you just want to scream. Because you, you see innocent people affected by wicked people, and then wicked people get theirs, but then they kill nine innocent people, and then they get killed. And, and you look at it and you go, Lord, I believe in your sovereignty, but how do I make sense that the guiltless and the wicked are both destroyed? The scourge kills suddenly, and it almost feels, end of 23, like you sucker punch me. Here's the image of being in the wrestling match or a boxing ring, it feels like you hit me and then you do a celebration dance over me after you sucker punched me. Now, if you don't know what a sucker punch is, that is someone who hits you without you even knowing it's coming. You know, they just take a shot at you. Some of you have seen those videos where some of the, the people have decided that they'll walk down a street and they'll hit an old person you remember when that was a, a thing in our world where we had people walking down streets and they would actually hit an elderly person and try to knock them out? And they did some serious damage. 
Well, here's what Job's saying. I feel like <clears throat> I can't see where you're coming from because you're God and you're so powerful and you made everything and I don't know what I did and I feel like you hit me and you knocked me down and then you're doing a celebration dance over me as if you're laughing at me from heaven. Is that what God is doing? No. God was boasting on Job. God said he's the most blameless and upright man that there is on the planet. But Job's perception is, he just knocked me out and he's doing a celebration dance. He, it's like, I feel like he's laughing at me from heaven. But Job's wrong, God is not. But that's how he feels. And I guess when it comes down to feelings, when we're trying to minister to one another and we're going through a hard time, Maybe we need to give ourselves a little bit of space even with our feelings. We could say to someone, oh, you're wrong. That's not what's going on. Let's turn to this. And someone might say, I know the Bible verse, but this is how I feel. And maybe we could get a little bit better at that, giving someone a little bit of space to say, this is how I feel. We're not saying that they're right. Look, let me just kind of jump on this for a second because I think you're going to see where I'm going. We're in all kinds of cultural debates right now, right? And we're going to sit with people who know this much of the Bible. Some know nothing. Some, their whole life has been shaped by a worldview where they've gotten input from all kinds of worldly secular sources. And you want to come in with your 16 machine gun Bible verses to prove them wrong. And I'm not saying that you need to agree with people's conclusions when they are coming from the platform of feelings. I'm not saying you have to agree with something that's false. But give a person a little bit of space at least to articulate how they're feeling. Everybody understand the difference? So if you're talking to someone, you might say, okay, I'm not going to argue that that's not how you feel, and I'm sorry. And then there's hopefully going to be an open door to say, however... This is what the Word of God says about this. Do you understand what I'm saying? We never compromise truth, but we give people space to be human. And that is going to make us a little bit more effective when we try to practice 1 Peter 3.15 to deal with people and give them the reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. How can you show someone respect if you won't even let them get a word in? They're not going to hear what you have to say until they know that you care enough to listen. That's what I'm talking about. And so he says, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. It seems like judges, politicians, everybody's paid off. Just when I think I've heard it all, then I hear something else that makes me have chagrin over religious leadership and political leaders and you name it. Just when I think I knew something about this situation, then I'm proven wrong. Now, conclusion. My days, well, they're swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good. I was, uh, some years ago, I had a chance to try out for the Seattle Mariners. I, I had a chance to go to a camp. And one of the things that they did is they timed you, I think it was the 60-yard dash. Now, I had a good bat and good hands, but I wasn't the fastest guy. And they timed me in the 60 with, let's just put it this way, a very fast individual to my left and a very fast individual to my right. 
So it was go. <laughs> I was seeing dust and cleats, dust and cleats, cleats and dust. They passed, and then the guy was waiting for me. Come on, come on, come on, come on. <whistles> and the line came forward. We can time you with a calendar, boy. <laughs> well, Job's life feels like it's running away like a fast runner, like he's never going to catch up. He says, I, I don't feel like I'll see any good. 26, they slip by me like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on in its prey. If you've ever seen that happen, you know how quickly an eagle can swoop down or a boat pass or it can grab something so quickly and, and that's it. And Job might say, I feel like the eagle's prey right now. I felt like I could mount up with wings like eagles a few months ago and now I feel like the eagle's got me in its talons and its clutches. What should I do? Three options and we're done. Option number one. Though I say I will forget my complaint, verse 27, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful. I know what I'll do. Option number one, I'm going to turn on that song. Don't worry. I'll be happy. And I'm just going to put the smile on my face and, and that's it. I'm just going to, that's it. I'm just going to over, you ever done that before? All right, that's it. That's enough. I'm tired of hearing myself. I'm tired of complaining. I'm going to smile. And that lasts for about five minutes, right? <laughs> and here's why. He says, I'm afraid of all my pains. My pain's still there. I know that you will not acquit me. I don't think you're going to release me from this. And I'm accounted wicked. Remember, not all of his perceptions are correct. Why then should I toil in vain? Why do the work of trying to smile and forget about my problems when I still have boils and pains in the night? And I don't think you're going to forgive me anyway. <laughs> I've never been there before. I'm not, not going to smile. Nope. I'm just going to frown at everybody. <laughs> you ever... Run across somebody on the street and you're like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, I think you had a bad week or a bad year, right? And then you end up there and you're like, oh, now I know what that feels like. Option number one, put on a happy face, forget about the past. But that's not dealing with the root issue because I still have my pain. I still don't know what God is doing. It doesn't deal with the core. A plastic smile ain't going to fix it. Option number two. If I should wash myself with snow, 30, cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. All right, we're not going to do the plastic smile and just forget about the past. If I, option two, would wash myself, clean myself up, I know I'm a disaster. I know I've been sitting in the ash pile. I know I'm a mess. I should probably take a shower, put on some new clothes, but here's the problem. If I clean myself up, I feel like the moment I walk through the door, he'll take me and dunk me into the pit of mud. Why bother? And your friends and family might say, please, take a shower. Risk it. <laughs> Risk it. It's okay. But here's what Job is saying. It doesn't matter how many showers I take. I feel like the moment I take the shower, I'm still dirty. Because in the eyes of God, I feel dirty. Now let me ask you, how many people do you think 
are trying to do outward religious things, but inside still feel dirty. Because our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Everybody flip over to Psalms quickly. Psalm 51, just to your right. Here's David. He's sinned against God. We know, we understand what David did wrong. His sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51. Here's his cry, Psalm 51. Look at 7 through 12. David's talking about how he was brought forth in iniquity. God wants truth in his innermost being, 51.6. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. You don't want me just cleaned up on the outside, 51.6. Psalm 51.6, you want me to be true on the inside, in, in my innermost being, in the hidden part that nobody can see. You want me to be wise, 7. Then purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. God, you're going to have to do it and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me, what's your Bible say? Give me a clean heart, Lord. That's what I need. I need a clean heart. Not, not your pumping organ here, the center of your being, your mind, emotions, will, and intellect. Create in me right there in the center of who I am. Make me clean. Oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, this is what I need. If I'm gonna have a true smile, true joy, restore to me the joy of my Yeshua. See, the salvation is literally Yeshua. It's the name of Jesus right there. Restore to me thy, the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Back to Job and we'll finish it. Third and final option, best and final option is here. It's not going to help to do a plastic smile and just try to forget about the past. It's not going to help to do just a cleanup job on my own, a self-cleanup job. Here's what I need. He says, 32, Job 9. For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire, ESV, no arbiter, between us, who may lay his hands, his hand upon us both. New King James 9.33 of Job. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. New Living Translation. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. Let him remove his rod from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him but I am not like that in myself. I need a mediator. I need a go-between. I need an arbiter who could represent God and represent me in this court battle. And brothers and sisters, I think you can see where this is going because the book of Job is leading us to the gospel of Jesus, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus. And from heaven, the one to whom Job complains about, the one that he doesn't understand, the one that he doesn't get his justice, is the one who will come down and be that mediator. He is the one who will die on the cross, and if I can put it this way, have a hand to God and a hand to 
to man. He is the go-between, and it is by his blood that we are ransomed back to God. That which divides us, that which makes us unrighteous in his sight, Jesus becomes the one. The judge takes the punishment. The judge descends from his mahogany bench, lays down his gavel, takes off his a majestic robe and says, now, even though I am your judge, I will become the one who pays your penalty. That is the gospel. Job is digging his way down to the gospel. We have a problem of evil in our world. It is undeniable, and it does us no good to ignore it or not face it. But we have a power of a gospel that is good news for people like you and me. Do you believe it? We have a God who became our mediator. He became our go-between. He became one of us to bring us back to God. The righteous one died for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. The book of Job is pointing us to the greater Job. His name is Jesus, who suffered without cause. He was hated without cause. He took punishment that he did not deserve. The, the devil put him right in his scope to destroy him, but he destroyed the works of the devil. He took the death instrument of the devil and made an open spectacle of him, triumphing over him by the cross. He came, the Son of God came to destroy the works of Satan, to destroy him who had the power of death, to taste death for each one of us. And now, what do we have? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And my little children, says John, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. But if any of you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. How can a man be right in God's eyes? How can a woman be right in God's eyes? We can't, because we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus makes us right in the eyes of God. Amen? That's who you are if you're in Christ tonight. And if you're not in Christ tonight, you can be. Just trust Him. Bring your questions to the foot of the cross. Because here's something I know about my faith. And I promise this is the last thing I'm going to say. Here's what I know. When I'm talking to someone who maybe of another religion or maybe an atheist, here's what I know. I acknowledge there's a problem of evil. I acknowledge I do not understand it. And I have a lot of heartache and pain and I have my own questions. But I worship a God who entered into my pain and became my advocate and mediator. And there's a lot of things that I don't know. But one thing that I do know is history tells me about a blood-stained cross and an advocate who came down from heaven and a mediator who defeated death and left an empty grave behind and one who ever lives to intercede for his people. Father, we come before you grateful for such a mediator as Jesus in the midst of a fallen and broken world where inevitably pain and sorrow will come whether it's our own pain and sorrow in our bodies or the struggle with the problem of evil or something that happens in our sphere of life. But thank you that the book of Job is pointing us to a coming mediator. And thank you that Job 
is beginning to sense his need. See, that's where it begins. We have to know what our need is. We, we have a disease that's going to kill us. It's the sin virus. 100% deadly, 100% of the time. But Jesus came and dealt with it. He's our mediator, our advocate, our helper from heaven. What a friend we have in Jesus. And I pray that tonight, those who may not know you would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those who do know you might come back to that place of intimate fellowship. Those who are going through a tough time with tough questions, Lord, may you heal, may you restore, and may you give them hope. And may they become an ambassador of hope in the midst of that trial. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name.